0: And it's not always about whether or not you're going to lose or win. Sometimes you have to fight a battle even if you know you're going to lose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just have to. And so I don't think that only battles that you think you're going to win are the ones that you should fight.
1: That was Alan Mills, partner at Barnes & Thornburg, talking about his illustrious legal career and lessons learned as he approaches retirement. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Friedman. So it's one of my greatest privileges and honors to welcome the godfather of Barnes & Thornburg Law Firm, the incomparable Mr. Alan Mills. Alan, as a mentor and personal confidant, I'm particularly pleased to share your story with Indianapolis and the central Indiana business community. As you dawn on your official retirement at the end of 2023, after 41 years of legal excellence. But before we get started, will you please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that have led to you becoming the first Black attorney at Barnes & Thornburg, a 41-year legal trailblazer, and the first equity partner at our AmLaw 100 law firm?
0: I think it all starts with my mother and father being military people, although my mother wasn't in the military. My father was a career military man, so she basically was in the military too. And so we grew up mostly overseas in Madrid, Spain. And then his final tour of duty was at uh, Grissom Air Force Base. And then he became the chief probation officer there in uh, Kokomo, Indiana. So I ended up finishing high school at McConaughey High School, and then went to college up in Wisconsin, a small liberal arts college called Carthage College. And I went up there to play football. And when you're that young, you always think that you're a greater athlete than what you really are. (laughs) And that would have been true for me. But once I got up there, I decided to turn to uh, the books. In my sophomore year, I, I won the Harry S. Truman Fellowship from the Harry S. Truman Foundation, which picks one sophomore student from each state. And I was from the state of Indiana, even though I went to Carthage College up in Wisconsin, and it pays for the last two years of undergraduate study, and then it pays for your professional or graduate school also, and then you spend an internship wherever you want in federal or state government. And I had spent my internship with the uh, Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division, the Federal Enforcement S- Section, and this is when actually Jimmy Carter was president, so that just gives you an idea how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought that my career would be a Justice Department lawyer, but things change. And I went to Indiana University, McKinney, and and, and graduated summa cum laude. And I found that I was having a lot of law firms just asking me how come I didn't interview with them. I never interviewed with um, Barnes and Thornburg at the time. At the time, it was called Barnes, Hickam, Panzer, and Boyd. And I had spent a summer internship at what was then Baker and Daniels and thought that's where I was going to go. And then my dear friend Jim Strain called me out of the blue as a law student and asked me why I had not interviewed with what was then Barnes, Hickam, Panzer, and Boyd. And like the naive person I was at the time, I said because I didn't know it was a large law firm and I wasn't sure. And so even though it was outside of the recruiting cycle, Jim invited me over and I liked the people and went through the interview process and Herb Snyder, who was a labor lawyer at the firm at that time, took a particular interest in me. And Herb said something that no other law firm said, because I basically interviewed all around the country. I was in Arizona interviewing, back in New York interviewing. I was like, if you're going to fly me an interview, I would. And what was true at that time was that wherever I was going to go, I was going to end up being the first or maybe even the second black lawyer, in some cases, the first or second black employee at any law firm, because there just weren't that many African-American lawyers being recruited by major law firms. And so Herb Snyder said to me, he said, if you come here, I'm not going to guarantee that it's going to be smooth or that I'm going to understand everything you go to, but I will guarantee you this, that I will listen. And Herb kept his, his promise and he along with a couple other folks, are part of the reasons why I stayed so long. And I I was always appreciative of, of Ed Delaney's mentorship also, because Ed took a vested interest in me and wanted me to be successful and spoke on my behalf when I couldn't speak on my behalf.
1: Again, a lot that I didn't know at all, so that's really encouraging. And I think it already speaks to how... Empathy and the ability to recognize that I may not understand what you're going through, but at least I'm here to be a shoulder and to be a point where you can convey what you're going through was really the selling factor. I think that's particularly important when even today, when you're recruiting diverse and minority candidates in any respect that to recognize I may not as a non-diverse person fully appreciate what you're going through, but I'm here to be an empathetic
0: ear. That is so very true. And I I was also fortunate in the sense that we had some giants in the community, African Americans, who um, weren't in the legal sphere and not doing what I was doing. But once they found out I was there, took a particular interest in me. Bill Mays, who is now deceased, but on Mays Chemical Company. Dr. Frank Lloyd, who at the time was the CEO of Methodist Hospital. Faye Williams, who was prominent in the African American legal community. All of them took an interest in me in those early years and helped me keep my sanity.
1: That's important. And we're going to talk about that more in a bit because I know how important that is. That has been for me. I know how important it's been for you, too. But before we get there, you know, you have told me or I've heard had the privilege of hearing some of your stories regarding the challenges and frankly, absolute challenging and sometimes just straight up overt discrimination that you've had to face as being the only black attorney at our law firm for many years. I expect that there are many other diverse folks in in the Indiana legal community who can relate to some of those experiences. And while we both appreciate that many strides for diversity, equity and inclusion have been made in Indiana law firms and businesses over the last 40 years since you've been at Barnes, Our legal industry and community is still not quite progressive enough with regard to full representation of the diverse Hoosier communities that we serve as lawyers. However, I think it's important in all circumstances to provide some historical context so that our Indiana community can hear and appreciate the monumental challenges that folks like you had to deal with. So with all that, over the course of your extensive legal and professional career, can you recall a personal experience that you're willing to share that captures the essence of some of the inequities that diverse people still face in legal and business departments in Indiana and across our country today, whether they're in private practice, corporations, or even governmental organizations?
0: I think the legal community is catching up to where other aspects in corporate America have been already. It was slow to the game, that is the legal community, particularly big law, slow to the game in being inclusive and in finding people of of color. When I look back at, at my career, I never thought that I would be here this long. I thought in the beginning I would spend maybe two or three years and get this experience and go do something else. But then I made up my mind that I really wanted to be a big law firm partner, and that just puts you in a whole different mindset. I will say this, when I look at back at some of the things that happened to me in my early years, they would not happen now. People would find them so appalling. For example, I had a a, a partner who you never should talk ill of the dead, so I won't mention the name. <laughs> but um, he would walk into my office just about two or three days a week and tell his favorite end joke. And at that time, for me, there was really no HR that I could go to, no one who would believe me. The person was powerful enough that nothing was going to happen to him. If anything, it was going to happen to me and everything like that. And then you have to decide in those circumstances, how are you going to deal with that. Are you going to stay? Are you going to go? How are you going to deal with it? And for me, it was in in a strange way. Every time he did that, it was reassuring to me how much smarter I was than than some of these folks. Yeah, And I was not discouraged. It wasn't like it was the first time I had heard that word in my life. But I was just like, you're supposed to be this smart guy, and yet you're that stupid. and, And And ignorant. Yeah, and that ignorant. And so I mean, in in some regards, it just made me stronger, and I was determined that I was going to uh, survive this and get my dream, because I'm not going to let somebody else tell me what my dream should be or tell me that their perspective of me is what I should be as opposed to my perspective of me.
1: I appreciate that. I also want you to share your secretary's story because you shared a story that, again, is a situation (laughs) that today we would hope wouldn't occur. But I think it's important for Indianapolis and central Indiana to truly appreciate how far and how any diverse lawyers who are still in this community have truly had to endure things that today would never occur or no one would ever expect would actually happen.
0: So, so share that. I, I, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you two stories, and the first one will be the one regarding the secretary. And so, I'm a, an associate, and and she comes in. This is a, a, a white woman. She comes in, and she's crying. And, and i like- That's never a good sign. Yeah, I'm like, why are you crying? And she <laughs> says, my husband told me I can't work for a colored man. <laughs> and I'm sure that's not the word her husband used to right. describe me, but that's what she said. And so she went to the firm and asked to be moved. On one level, I did have sympathy for her. But on another level, I think that as a business person, if someone has that problem, I think the business should be saying to them, Well, this is who we assign you to, and if you can't do it, we feel sorry for your situation, but you have to make your choice, and you either go or stay. All right, well, they moved her to someone else. Right. (laughs) And I was not happy about that, but there was nothing I could do about that. And you just move on, and you keep your eye on the prize that you want for you. I guess the other story that the employee who helped me out here is still at at the firm after all these years. Back in the early days when we didn't have the computers on the desks, you had to send your, your work at night down to word processing and you would have a, an employee who would do the work overnight and then make your changes on documents and you would get the documents in the morning. And mine were never coming back in the morning. And I had partners questioning whether I was actually doing the work No matter how many times I said, I got it down there, I did it, they were looking at me as if I was the problem. And then one of the employees down there in word processing stood up and went to the firm management and said, Alan gets his work down here, but the person you have assigned to him, he says, I'm not going to do that end's work and just throws it back in the pile. And so each morning I'd come in and I wouldn't have my work done in the computer system down there. So fortunately, that situation got resolved. And I would suspect some people might say, okay, why didn't you go to another uh, law firm? But the truth of the matter is at that time, all these major law firms across the country were basically the same in this area. And if I had made up my mind that I wanted to be a partner at a major law firm, it was not going to be any different anywhere else. And so sometimes you have to go with the devil you know.
1: I really want to thank you for being so transparent about that. Because in today's age, I tell people all the time, every organization you're working for these days has those stories. Those are the stories, particularly amongst black folks and minority folks that you talk about at Christmas time with your friends about how crazy some of the circumstances are that black folks and diverse folks were working in. But that was communication amongst us, right? That wasn't stuff that was publicly shared. And I think, again, as you dawn on retirement, I think it's just so important that our community recognizes this stuff was happening right here in Indianapolis, too, just like every
0: place else in the country. It was. And, you know, the good thing is that these episodes that I've identified, I truly believe that right now. No one would tolerate them. Right, right. And unlike then, there is a place to go now to ask for redress on these things. And when I was starting out in the early 80s in these situations, there was really nowhere to go. You had to learn how to be your own source of strength. I feel like at the end of the day, I'm simply just a stronger person.
1: The last story I'm going to ask you to share, and then we will move on, but I I think this is important. And it's really part of your legacy. So I wanted to tie back for any of those who may have the privilege to visit Barnes and & Thornburg and see the beautiful new piece that was recently dedicated to you was the story of the gentleman at the shoe shop. Because yeah. <laughs> for me, that is um, one of the gems of an uh, Alan Mill story that no one else ever has. So please share that Well, this story. is
0: a story about how Sometimes certain people can be invisible to the dominant group. There is a great shoe repair shop next to our building called Cento Shoes. And I've been going there for this complete 41 years. And I I knew the dad, I knew the two sons and loved them all. They were just great people. They had two African-American gentlemen down there who were the shoe shiners. One was slim and one was steak. And I immediately bonded with them in part because Slim had been to Vietnam and had been a radio operator, and my father had spent two terms in Vietnam. So I, I always bonded with them. And where you get your shoes shined, you can sit two in the seat. And so the, the shoes would be shined of two different people. And I had been going there for a while. And one day I'm there, and I'm by myself. I'm sitting there, and Snake and Slim are there, and he's shining my sh- they're shining my shoes and just talking to me. And then Snake looks up at me and says, you know, I shine the shoes of of the partners at your law firm, too. And that didn't surprise me. Obviously, we're next door. And I said, yeah, I know. And then he pauses. And then he says to me, you know, they talk about you. Do you want to know what they say? Yeah. (laughs) And of course, I said, hell yes. (laughs) But um, it just shows you how certain people are invisible to other people. And people look at them and don't see them. And think they might not have any connection or to their word or value. And I always loved those guys. And so, you know, I always gave great tips. You know, they'd, they'd be shining shoes at that time for 3 or $4. And I'd give them $10 tip, sometimes even a $20 tip. And I always gave them great Christmas gifts, holiday gifts, because I felt like what they were saying to me always helped me because it helped me identify those who were truly advocates And those who were simply advocates to my face. And that was very helpful to me in terms of navigating the law firm.
1: I love that story. It is very, very powerful.
0: When I started out the law firm, I I was only a black employee. So if I wanted to see someone else black during the day, you know, I'd go down and get my shoes shined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Everything like that. And that became a ritual and a way to reset myself and a way to put on my suit of armor again and then go back. Upstairs, and so I found it very beneficial, and and it's consistent with what my parents have have taught me all of my life. That no one is invisible; everyone has worth. And as you go through life, no matter what station you are in, respect people for the hard work they do, and respect who they are. And I take that to heart.
1: So, with all that, and I think that gives a lot of color—not to no pun intended—to <laughs> yeah. to our conversation because. What I want to now ask you about is having had those kind of experiences and frankly experiences that many diverse folks and black folks now would say, oh, I would never, I'd never deal with that. I'd never. And again, this is a different time and a place, right? You said previously that you just learned from those experiences that you were stronger and smarter. But I'm going to ask you, in addition to that, what unique qualities or characteristics or skills do you possess or have you possessed that you believe have enabled you to be able to withstand circumstances and situations like that, To have such a successful legal career, despite your diverse background, so you did not allow diversity to be a limitation. And what policy and or procedural changes do you think need to be established for more diverse representation at all levels of leadership, not just in Indiana law firms and legal organizations, but anywhere?
0: I think what helped me navigate that situation was clearly growing up as a military brat to um, a military father. At that time, in the early 80s, the country was even more segregated than it is now. And there were a lot of black folks who had not been raised around white people, a lot of white people hadn't been raised around black folks. Because my father was in, in the Air Force, and because the military before the rest of society was desegregating because the military was desegregating years earlier. I lived in integrated neighborhoods. When I was in Spain, most of the service people were white. So I had been around white people and had a better appreciation of the dynamics that could go on with that. And so I was, in some regards, I was a little bit more prepared than others might have been. And I think that 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 helped me. And the other thing too is because my father was like, his view was if something goes wrong for you, you get 24 hours of moaning and crying about it and then you got to put on your your big, your big boy pants, your big yeah. girl pants and go at it again. You don't get to sit there and linger and woe me. You get 24 hours yeah. and then you better buck up and handle the situation. And that's the view I've always taken of my life. And as for things that we can do right now, I see a lot of good things happening right now, not only in the firm that I'm in, but also in other firms. I think that uh, we have leadership now that takes these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's very important to them. I do worry some that with some of these political dynamics going on, and the attack on diversity, equity, inclusion, that there will be some regression but I, I have faith that there won't be. And I, and I think that the people who this is an important issue to, they're in a better position than I ever was as a young uh, lawyer and that they can speak up much more aggressively. I had to pick my spots. For example, day one when I came in, I knew I had to establish at least some boundaries so that people knew who I was at the core. And so the first thing I did is because you get to decorate your office and everything like that, I had a Norman Rockwell pint of Ruby Bridges walking between the two, between the four marshals when she was integrating the Little Rock school system in Arkansas. And that was the only piece of art I hung in my room along with my diploma because I think it needed to symbolize who I was without having having to say it on a daily basis. And it's what's really funny is I've had older partners who are older than I am who years later have come back and mentioned <laughs> that piece in my my office and the impression it left on them as to who I was and how these issues needed to be more important to the firm. So I am really encouraged to where things are at right now, particularly at Barnes and Thornburg, because I know that firm better than any other firm. And I see what's happening and I see what is happening for the last 10, 10, 15 years. And I feel like there are good things happening and there's going to be opportunity for people of color in general, but African-Americans in particular.
1: That's fantastic. And I, I like how you allowed your art to symbolize what you were trying to say without actually having to say it on a regular basis. That's clever. So unquestionably, Alan, I mean, the whole reason we're having this conversation is because you have attained a significant level of professional success that many people will potentially not know. And as amazing as I know you are, I cannot believe that over the course of 41 years that you've never experienced failure or disappointment. So can you share with us the opportunity where you failed in business or law? What did you learn? And
0: how were you able to recover successfully? Anyone who's had a career as long as I have, that person has had moments where they have not had the success that they they wanted to have. I mean, in the early days as I was developing my practice and I ended up having one of the largest practices in the firm, there were people who would not meet with me and and they would meet with other lawyers and there was a sense on that business development front that I was failing and I just had to buck up and work 10 times harder. I think that there was the perception of some in the business community unfortunately at that time that lawyers of color were not as good as the white lawyers and therefore It was all right for you to be on their matters, but it was not all right for you to lead their matters. And you know, and some people, I've eventually convinced over other people, I was never going to convince. And so those are failures in the sense that the goal I had set for myself wasn't being accomplished in the time period that I had identified. And I also think to myself that I do play back. Are there times when maybe I should have said? this or that for a particular situation as opposed to holding my tongue. And I've come to the conclusion that no one else walks in your shoes and each person has to make a decision on how they're going to handle their professional life and when they feel it necessary to speak up or when they decide that, you know what? I got to let this one pass. And it's not always about whether or not you're going to lose or win. Sometimes you have to fight a battle even if you know you're going to lose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. just you just have to. And so I don't think that only battles that you think you're going to win are the ones that you should fight.
1: So in that same vein, I want to know it sounds like, you know, you did have some failures, some challenges, but I also want to talk about what Indiana organizations can do. To make sure that their cultures or their business environments allow diverse people to fail. We know that there are opportunities in business and particularly law where non diverse folks get opportunities, get do overs, get second chances that diverse folks simply do not get.
0: That is absolutely true. I think for that to change, it has to come from the top, and we have to have the right leaders who have a vision. I look at some of the things that we've implemented over time at Barnes & Thornburg that help in this area. For example, we have implemented a program where we're monitoring the workload of associates to make sure that diverse lawyers are getting put on good clients also, and that diverse lawyers are getting their uh, the, their hours in. We have um, worked to really figure out the best way to do our our evaluations and to make sure these evaluations are really tied to the skill sets that are needed to be a good lawyer. Those things are so important because those evaluations influence who progresses in the system we have taken a greater role in being active in the community because the truth of the matter is if you want diverse talent and diverse lawyers in particular, you've got to be able to show them that there is a community here outside of the law firm that's going to be welcoming to them. And it's not only a community that's going to be welcoming to them, it's a community that the firm is engaged in, that the community that the firm is a participant in. All of those things are important in terms of keeping people and progressing people. And then you have to make sure you have the right kind of leadership at departments. When you have departments where there have been diverse lawyers in and none of them are progressing, then you've got to ask, all right, is there something going on with this leadership? Is there something going on with the partners in the department? You have to have those very, very difficult conversations. I think that sometimes people are afraid to have difficult conversations, but I believe that difficult conversations lead to resolution. And the fear to have those conversations only maintains the status quo. And things never change if you don't have those difficult conversations.
1: So let's just talk about that a little bit, Alan, because you you got some sage wisdom on this. Because I find people to be very conflict-averse, even lawyers who everybody thinks loves to argue and loves to have conflict. And I, I find that You know, yeah, there are some people who are just gunners and always going to say the improper thing at the, you know, improper time. But more so, I find that people are often conflict averse. They don't want to say the obvious thing that everybody's thinking, but no one wants to say. And to your point. I've never been shy of being that person simply (laughs) because I'm trying to progress things forward. You can't move the ball forward if nobody acknowledges why the ball isn't moving at
0: all. Right. I think that's absolutely true. And it's particularly true in the area of race, because race in America is a difficult proposition. I mean, the bigotry was embedded in our constitution. (laughs) I mean, And so it is always going to be a difficult and hot button issue in America. But the truth of the matter is this, if we don't talk about it, even when we're uncomfortable, it will never get resolved in a way that's equitable and fair. It simply would not be. And I think we have more people willing to have those difficult conversations and willing to um, look at issues in a way that is inclusive. And I think those things are just so important right now. I have a great deal of excitement as to where the law profession is going to be going uh, now. I have a great deal of excitement for my colleagues at Barnes and Thornburg, and I see a lot of positive things happening in the legal environment. We still have a ways to go, we still do, but I see positive things and, and I just hope that people don't regress.
1: So let's talk about kind of more on the mentorship and we've talked about retention. Let's talk about, what's necessary to recruit folks and advance folks, particularly in the legal profession. You've unquestionably been involved in promoting and championing me and multiple other diverse attorneys as a legal expert for many years. And on multiple accounts, you've leveraged your relationships, particularly with in-house counsel, in order to promote my visibility, success, and advancement. And this is a definition of what sponsorship is or championship is. And I'm but one of many recipients of your support in that regard. Can you please describe your approach in establishing an inclusive law firm culture where in-house legal counsel or business professional partners with outside counsel in order to hold them accountable on recruiting, retaining, and promoting a pipeline of diverse legal talent within a law firm
0: environment. I have always felt being the only one in the room is simply not an honor. When you're the only one in the room, then you need to go in there kicking and screaming to make sure others are in the room. And I think that you have to be willing once you get to a certain status in a law firm to hold other people accountable. And this not only includes your partners, but also includes your clients. I mean we have plenty of clients and those in the business community who say diversity and equity and inclusion is important but then they pay lip service to it. They don't actually make it happen and a lot of law firm partners are hesitant to challenge their clients on these types of things and uh, to say, okay, you said this but this is what you're doing. And given that you said this, this is what you should be doing. And I think that you have to have those types of honest conversations with your clients too. I'm not saying you go in and you throw a cocktail, but there are ways to have those conversations that keep the ball moving. And I think sometimes law firm partners are afraid to have those conversations with their clients. And the other thing too is, as I grew my book a business, I always made sure that diverse lawyers would have opportunities And my view about opportunity is that people aren't always going to do things the way you would want them done or even in a way that you think is best. But it is a process of failure and success and if we don't allow people of color to have those opportunities of failure to rebound like we do white lawyers, then that to me is fundamentally problematic. And so, as I said, throughout my practice, I have included people and given them opportunity, turned over clients to them, and as I retire, you know, one of the things I am very, very proud of is that I have spread my practice around a number of lawyers at the firm who are great lawyers and who are committed to these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and I've left part of my practice to African American women, I've left some to white lawyers, I've left some to Hispanic lawyers, I've left some to Asian American lawyers. I just feel like you have to be purposeful on these things if you want change to to happen. And so as I was deciding who was going to take over my practice, I looked at who were the great lawyers, who were the people I depended upon in the past. And it turned out, they were from all shades and all sexes (laughs) in the environment. And that's how I spread my practice out because I know how difficult it is to create and maintain a practice. I mean, any lawyer who's been practicing uh, as long as I have will tell you that the clients you had 40 years ago, 20 years ago, or sometimes even 10 years ago are not the clients you have now. That's right. There is a change. And so you've got to always be on your game.
1: And I I so appreciate the... Purposefulness and the intentionality. I think if so many more of our legal decision makers, our business owners, our business community were as intentional and thoughtful about. Making sure that, of course, everyone expects their legal work to be done by quality and excellent Absolutely. lawyers. Absolutely, but that I expect it. That's right, and me too. <laughs> yeah. you know, we we're tough. Like we, that never changes. But that doesn't mean that does not exclude that it can also be done by very qualified, diverse lawyers. Right, right? I,
0: I agree. I'll tell you a funny story. I won't say his name. He's no longer at the firm. There was a, a an African American lawyer who was um, working for me and. He was he was one of the sweetest guys, you know. But he was just messing up, and he was just messing up, and he was like, "Alan, if you if you fire me, there are going to be no other black associates in 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 the department." And I was like, "Dude, man, I'll fire you, and I'll hire somebody black to replace you." So, <laughs> so that's not going to be your saving grace here. But I gave him multiple opportunities, and you know, it it just didn't work out. But the truth of the matter is that it doesn't work out for a lot of people, and so you just don't get too excited about that as long as you're making sure that everyone is given a fair, full, and complete opportunity. It's not going to work out for everyone. I get that.
1: And especially diverse lawyers. You know, I mean, you know my story. I've learned that the hard way. You know, you expect as a diverse lawyer, and particularly a diverse partner, part of your job is to help build the pipeline of diverse talent so that We are not the only ones in the room that we're building a pipeline for people to come. But it is a challenging proposition to appreciate that. Yeah, every diverse lawyer, just like every white lawyer or non-diverse lawyer, is not always a great fit or simply is not going to be work out, as you said. And I think for me, being a newer partner who's now in that position, that's been a really tough lesson to learn. And really recognize that it's nobody's fault. Some people work, some people don't. And that's going to be irrespective of race or ethnicity or gender.
0: Right. As long as you can come to the table and say, I've given this person a full, fair, and equitable opportunity to be successful in this environment. And given them more than one chance or two chances or three chances. As long as you can say you've done that, then I think you've done your job. And the other thing too is, and I tell people all this, no lawyer leaves a big law firm and goes to starve. (laughs) You usually go on to something else as good, if not better. And so, I never worry that all of a sudden this person's not going to have an opportunity because in this day and age, they're going to have another opportunity. And also, it doesn't mean that they're not good lawyers. They just were not their best selves in this environment right 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 and i get that
1: yeah yeah because it's not for everybody yeah absolutely that's the truth and now it's time for a quick break
0: Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at insideindianabusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're back with Alan Mills, partner at Barnes and Thornburg, on this 28th episode of the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So you have built a brand and legacy in this environment on building and establishing strong relationships that you can leverage for the betterment of not just yourself, but many others. Again, I'm a beneficiary of that. Often one benefit of such relationships has been legal work that has helped sustain the practice in your career, as well as the careers of so many other diverse attorneys. We touched on this earlier, but I want to know what you believe is the role of in-house counsel or general counsel, or again, even business professionals who are in the decision-making seat with regard to where their legal work goes and their outside counsel. What do you believe is their role with regard to accountability for making sure that diverse talent gets on their files and their matters?
0: I think that if a corporation is committed to these things, they have to establish metrics on how it's going to be um, measured. They need to keep track of hours that are being done by the lawyers on their case to see where the diverse lawyers are at. And sometimes they need to be more specific. That is, if you have an environmental project and there are diverse lawyers in the environmental department of the firm that you're going to use and you haven't met them, it's incumbent upon you to say, I haven't met these folks and I'm making a decision on whether this is work I want to give you. Feel, Put them at the table so I can meet them too, so I can make a decision. You need to ask those questions, then you need to hold them accountable. There's got to be a system where you're reviewing what the law firm is doing in terms of the hours, promotion and retention. You've got to ask about promotion and retention. And then you've got to figure out, okay, Who's going to be my advocate for these issues as the in-house counsel, I think, are important? Who's going to be my advocate inside that law firm? And then you have to find those people inside that law firm and empower those people. In the practice of law, the way you empower people is to give them business. (laughs) It is really that simple. You don't empower them by giving lip service to them. You don't empower them by sending emails, complimenting them. You empower them by giving them business that they can disperse throughout the firm to others. That's how you empower people. It is really that simple.
1: Yeah, that's helpful because I I truly believe so many folks, particularly who are not in the legal practice, who are just in the business department, don't appreciate how law firms actually work and how driving change and making change in a law firm really does require A book of business. It is not an email that pats somebody on the back. It is not, oh, I'm going, I'm working through another attorney that is not a diverse attorney at your law firm. That is doing nothing to empower the diverse attorneys in that law firm to continue diversifying the pipeline.
0: You're absolutely right. I think that what happens sometimes is that a lot of these senior in house counsel or um, even the general counsel, a lot of them, we're at law firms sometimes 10, 15 years ago. And so they think they know how big law firms operate because they had spent some time there 10 or 15 years ago. And what they are not realizing is the character of big law firm or big law has so changed in 10 or 15 years. And what you thought you knew about the mechanics of a big law firm 10 or 15 years ago are simply not the mechanics of those law firms now.
1: That's excellent because you're right. There are so many lawyers who do a two year stint in a law firm and then go work in house for 20 years. And you're absolutely right. What law was then and particularly Indiana law firms. Let me speak specifically about Indiana, because we've seen I've been in the law firm for 10 years at this point. Right. Like I remember what many of the law firms were when I interview with them and what they are now. And they are very different with respect to diversity. And I say that because I've had conversations with business leaders in Indiana who purport that one of the reasons why they're going to law firms outside of Indiana is because they don't find the diversity they desire within Indiana law firms. And I've kind of pushed back on that because there's a lot more diversity now, just like in every place else in the country, in Indiana law firms as or isn't anywhere.
0: Absolutely. And not only that, if they don't find what they want in the Indiana law firms on these types of issues, they can create it. An example of a creator, if I had to pick general counsel who I thought have done this in an exceptional way, they've empowered people, they've created opportunity for people at these law firms, there are two people who come in mind. One is uh, Sharon Barnard, the former general counsel of Cummins, who is now in the chief administrative office. She was purposeful, and she created opportunity for people throughout the nation. The other is Ernest Newborn, who's the general counsel for USI Insurance in New Jersey. That man is purposeful. He created opportunity, and not only in creating that opportunity, he's had one of the most successful legal departments of any legal department in the nation. People are winning cases for him. People want to work for him because he is so purposeful, and he has such a high success rate for the legal business his company is doing. They win, and they win on a regular basis. And Sharon is like that too. Now, they're probably both laughing because they're both Michigan grads who went to Michigan at the same time for (laughs) law school. So they're, they're probably saying, Jim Harbaugh might not have it together, but we <laughs> Michigan lawyers have it together. OK. <laughs> but
1: what but thing you say about that? Let, let's talk about the elephant in the room in that, because I know both Sharon and Ernest and what I know is they're both well-established, well-influential Black diverse attorneys. But what about the non-diverse attorneys who want the same outcome but are not as comfortable as clearly Sharon and Ernest were for asking for that, for demanding that in their outside counsel? What about the folks who are in Indiana businesses who may not be diverse themselves but are absolutely allies and proponents for diverse? Diversifying the
0: law firm. Well, they, they need to be more forceful on these issues. And the truth of the matter is, law firms want your business. And if you tell us this is what you want, and you make it clear it's what you want and it's not a wink wink, we're going to figure it out and get it done. You don't have to figure out all of this by itself. You give the vision, we work out the mechanics. Because I say to myself, I'm a lawyer, I solve problems. So how is it this issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a problem that I can't solve? I just refuse to accept that it's not a problem I can't solve because I'm a lawyer and I solve people's problems. And that's the way that law firms and people in law firms have to view these issues. And that's the way the outside counsel, who's the general counsel, he or she has to identify these issues. You give the vision and we figure out how to solve this problem for you.
1: I think you and I have both seen in the course of our careers for law firms who are resistant to getting on the DEI and i bus and really giving lawyers of color and diverse lawyers a true equitable opportunity. What really changes that is powerful clients who are absolutely hell-bent on the fact that it is important to them. And that certainly seems to make law firms who are not intrinsically and inherently caring about these issues a lot more caring when their, you know, major clients are saying, look, if you don't get some diverse lawyers on my matters, I can find all kinds of law firms out here that can.
0: That's so true. In my 41 years, one of my friends was Crystal Dehan. And Crystal DeHaan had a saying just about anything, if you want to know how things get done, if you want to see things change, follow the money. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And she was so so right. You have to follow the money. People will put their money where they think their mouths are, and so you just have to follow the money. And if the in-house counsel say, this is where the money's going to go, if these things are accomplished, they will get accomplished. Yeah, It really is that simple. Yeah,
1: yeah. So... You're known and respected for being a lover of jazz and art. And you spoke about some of your art earlier in the conversation. You also have established a signature look by always wearing a bow tie. If you're wearing a tie and often a hat, which you have here with you today. In fact, I don't know that I've ever seen you dress in any type of suit that wouldn't finish with a fly and fashionable bow tie and or hat. So I want to know, how did this fashion trend start and was there a purpose or meaning behind it?
0: As I said, my dad was career Air Force. He spent close to 30 years in the Air Force and he would wear the same uniform to work every day. But we would iron his fatigues. We would shine his boots. And my dad he would always say to us, if you go out in the world, you need to be looking your best, you need to be dressed and it's your suit of armor and you go out in the world because it's kind of the first thing people are going to see you other than our case being black. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But And so, I learned that from my father that no matter what job you have or how much money you have, when you go out in the work environment, you dress appropriately and I always have loved my uh, bow ties. And a little funny story is when I was an associate, I would wear my bow ties. And, you know, I'm a Catholic boy. I was raised Catholic. My parents are Catholic. I mean, everyone in our family is Catholic. My kids went to Catholic school, just Catholic. And then we had this partner who every day, no matter how many times I told him I'm Catholic, he'd be like, oh, are you Muslim? Right. <laughs> are you Muslim? And I was like, <laughs> dude, man. And so, you know, I guess today they would call that a microaggression. Right, <laughs> and right. everything like that. But at some point, you learn how to ignore people. And I got to the point wherever he asked, I would just walk away. I mean, I just think that at some point, sometimes you just have to walk away from things because you just realize no matter what you say to that person, they're going to be stupid. And you don't have to entertain stupid. I'm not saying that every time you have to cuss them out and fight back, sometimes you can just walk away because they're not going to be cured of their stupidity. Right, it's right, It's just right. going to be there. Right, <laughs> right, and it's just going to stress you yeah, out. Yeah, it's just yeah. going to stress you out. So I've always liked to dress, and my brothers and sisters, I come from a big Catholic family of seven kids, and they all take the same perspective in their professional lives, that when we go out, like our dad said, no matter what we're wearing, even if we're wearing the same type of fatigues every day, they have to be ironed, our shoes are shine, and we're tucked in, and we're looking neat and presentable for the world.
1: I mean, more than anyone that I've spoken with, these days, everyone's talking about being authentic at work, right? Being able to express your authenticity. I mean, you grew up, as you've expressed to us and shared with us so many stories, in a business environment where just you showing up in your skin was you being authentic, Right. But I want to know, how did you navigate that? Because these days, there's so much emphasis on the fact that what kind of mental and emotional tolls it takes on diverse people to code switch, to become someone they're really not, to make others in any corporate environment feel more comfortable or more. How were you able to navigate that challenge. And I understand you said you were stronger, but that has to take a toll. In fact, we now have data that shows it takes a toll on you mentally, emotionally, but still you hung out 41 years. So how were you able to navigate your authenticity in that environment?
0: I think that to be authentic doesn't mean that you have to tell everyone what you think all the time that you think it it doesn't mean that you have to let everyone know everything about you. And I think that each person has to define for him or herself the scope of what it means to be authentic in the business environment. And I think that now there is a broader definition and there's a greater leeway for people to express more. When I was associate, to me, hanging that Norman Rockwell piece was authentic. And then I had noticed as an associate that everyone was often asking for contributions for their different community organizations and everything like that. And obviously none of them ever involved any community organizations that were focused on black folks or that were run by black people. And so I started doing my solicitations for uh, the United Negro College Fund. And it was really interesting because I have partners come to me and say, I've never been asked to contribute to this before. And yeah, I I think I can do that. I think I could do that. (laughs) And so, to me, part of my authentic self was A, that piece of art, B, asking for contributions for minority organizations, in particular African Americans. And also, part of my authentic self was the way I dress, because that was always honoring my father and what my father and what my mother taught me about how you conduct yourself in this world. And I also think this. On all honesty there are conversations now I would willingly have with people in the work environment that I wouldn't have had then because every person has to weigh the consequences associate with a with a conversation because you can be right and still lose absolutely
1: absolutely <laughs> and so
0: and I think sometimes people think that simply because you're right that's enough no but you can you can be right and still lose in every career
1: industry and particularly law and we talked about this a bit earlier the need for mentoring folks to teach and tell them critical career information that oftentimes you otherwise wouldn't know, and particularly diverse people who may not have had experience or exposure or family who are in any particular career field like law that is so niche. You mentioned earlier a couple people at the firm who had been some of your mentors. But, you know, when you look retrospectively over the course of your career, because just like law firms, law clients, mentors change over the course of your career. Who have been some of your most influential and engaged legal mentors? And then also, how do you mentor and sponsor talented folks coming after you?
0: I would say for me, there are three people that I I just have the uh, fondest appreciation of. One would be Herb Snyder, who um, was a labor partner and then went on to open our Fort Wayne office. Herb was just a very intelligent and thoughtful guy. It's not that we always agreed, but he was always willing to have the conversation and he was always willing to give opportunity. And what's funny is that the first two African-American partners after me was Don Roseman and Herb was a mentor to Don also. So he took us both under his wings. I had become a partner by the time Don come. The next person would be Ed Delaney. And Ed was just, first of all, he's, he's one of the funniest men I know. And Ed looked after me, gave me good work, gave me great criticism. As a matter of fact, Ed and I tried the first civil recall jury trial in the nation in Judge Stapleton's court in Wilmington, Delaware. Judge Stapleton is now on the second circuit, I believe he gave me great opportunity. And then the person who uh, I'm also particularly fond of is the person who was head of the recruiting committee that recruited me to the firm at the time, and that was Jim Strain. And I got to tell you uh, a, a funny Jim Strain story because uh, I appreciate him so much. And Jim and Jim was actually, a, uh, I think he was a Supreme Court clerk for Rehnquist. And so obviously, I had my suspicions of him in the beginning, but, um, <laughs> but he long overcame that because he's just such a good guy. And so we are, there was the heirs tea room, which was the cross from the street from our building. And and I guess I was, I don't know if if the word was an anomaly or whatever, like, I, but as a young associate, all the older partners in their late 50s and 60s, they would invite me to lunch at the heiress tea room. I, they, I think they were curious. And so I'm there as a 20-something-year-old, and everyone at the table is in their late 50s, 60s, and some even in their 70s. And so it was uh, a Tuesday after a Monday night football game, and it was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers playing. And one of the older partners at the luncheon goes, "Did you guys see the game last night?" And everyone said, "Yeah, we saw the game." He says, "Did you see how many black players Tampa Bay had? They're taking over. They're taking over the NFL. We need to do something about that." <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting ready to come out of my skin and say any something. And Jim Strain, to his credit, he puts his hand on my arm and he says, Alan, don't say anything. There will come a time when all of this will be yours and all of them will be dead. And he was absolutely right. <laughs> so Jim Jim is such a good a good guy and uh, and I always enjoyed that pearl of wisdom because I was I was really about ready to come unglued and people were gonna see a part of my mind they hadn't seen yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. And Jim was like, nah, nah, this ain't the time, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's a bigger picture, right? Yeah, there's a bigger yeah. there's a bigger picture.
1: I appreciate that. So again, we've looked retrospectively. Let's look to the future. The whole reason I've had you here is to give you honor, to allow the Indianapolis community to truly appreciate like I've had the pleasure of appreciating what a gym you are to this community. What you've done to really set black folks and diverse folks, not just in Indianapolis and central Indiana, but really across the country in a different playing field and to have confidence in what we're doing. And you're doing all this in contemplation of a retirement that is coming very quickly at this point. Um, And so I expect that you've had time to consider what your professional and legal legacy in Indianapolis and nationally may be. And so with less than a few months until you retire, what are some of the things you'd like folks to know about you, about your passions, about your purpose, which I think we've talked a lot about? That may not be broadly or obviously known. And then what things are you most looking forward to after retirement that you weren't able to really enjoy over the height of these last 40 plus years?
0: For me right now, things that I'm really excited about, I've always been a jazz guy and I've visited some of the the top notch jazz clubs throughout the United States and even Ronnie Scott's in, in London and, and all of those in New York. And so I do want to spend more time going to jazz clubs, going to jazz festivals and listening to music. I'm a big John Coltrane and Miles Davis kind of guy. And my granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter, she's a big John Coltrane person. Every time she comes over to the house, she says, Alexa, play John Coltrane.
1: <laughs> she <laughs> and got it so, down. She got already. it, she got it down
0: already. <laughs> and I'm on the board of, of Newfields. And obviously we've got our own issues these days, but I want to pay more attention to the, to the art. I want to be more involved with butter because I love those folks over at Gang Gang. And I think that the art community is going through something right now. And the something that they're going through is very good. I think it's going to be, and I'm talking about the art community uh, nationwide, and I think it's going to be a good thing for women. I think it's going to be a good thing for artists of color. And I think there is a, a, a time now where the works of women and artists of color are getting a greater appreciation. And then obviously, the other thing is I have four Grandchildren: a seven-year-old, two two-year-olds, and a three-month-old. Uh, two boys, two girls, and and we have a place down in Savannah. So I want to. I'm always anxious to get them down to Savannah and be part of their growth. I want them to be able to uh, remember grandparents who are active in their lives and who are talking to them. And the other thing that I'm proud of that Barnes and Thornburg clearly has helped me with. I am a strong believer for the African American community that we have to create generational wealth. I am not saying that wealth solves all problems or wealth means you are immune from discrimination. It it doesn't. But what I'm saying is that creating that generational wealth puts us in a better position where we can fight those things. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to create generational wealth for my family because that's always been incredibly important to me. It's been something that my parents preached to me. It's something that I preached to my adult children. And so we find ourselves saving and investing together because I just think that it's just so important because when you have that generational wealth, that means that the next generation is going to be able to have a greater spectrum of choices they can make and everything like that. And I think that that's so important if this society is going to move forward
1: you've really put into context for me what this career looks like. As I see you coming to the end of your career, It absolutely puts the fire in my belly to be able to create such a legacy with the full appreciation. And I've made it very clear to everyone I'm talking about. I don't have as long as you have. (laughs) I I came into this game very late. You know, I don't have as long. But you came
0: with a bam. I did. I did.
1: And I hope to go out in the same way. But, you know, it really does make me appreciate all that you've done, how far. We've come on your back and so many of the things that you took for us. And when I say us, I don't mean just the diverse folks or the black folks at Barnes and Thornburg. I really do mean in this Indiana community, in the national community, because you are the generation, the legal generation before us. That really has helped Establish so many foundational things that we take the benefit of is why I'm so hell bent on making sure we do things like this to give credit where credit is due to allow those who, because I think the younger generation just comes in and they're trying to move the ball forward, but don't really appreciate how far we've actually come. And to your point, Don's point, we're not nearly where we should be, but we have come a mighty
0: long way absolutely we have and i don't say this in the sense of saying to the young people now oh gosh you should be happy because we've come this long way no not at all you've got to carry the ball the rest of the way i mean because the things that that we did and how we did them may not be the same way you need to do them now i i am not one of those people that says i put up with this or i suffered this so you just got to be big enough no the point should be if this happened to me, I should be working to make sure that it never happens to you. That's right. And that's how I view it. And I don't think that young people now want to do that. And I think there is a there is plenty of room for growth and I think these younger voices are so important. And part of the reason that, you know, I'm retiring uh now and I'm 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 not at the at our firm's mandatory retirement age. I'm I'm actually kind of retiring a year early. But part of what I wanted to do, I didn't want to be that partner who stays so late that his or her practice is dried up and they don't have anything to leave to young people. And I wanted to make sure that when I retired, that I was leaving a practice that was material to young people so that they would have a head start and they wouldn't have to start from scratch like I did. And I want to encourage these lawyers who are at these other big law firms don't go into your your 70 or 75 and everything like that and things. Try. Give young people their time, their time. And I recognize sometimes people have different economic su- situations that require them to go longer and everything like that. But if you made your money and you made your mark, let the young people have their day, man. Yeah. I mean, just, just, just back away and, and support them.
1: It sounds to me like you've established generational wealth for your own family, but you've also established generational wealth for the young lawyers who are coming after you in the law firm. It's the exact same thing. Yes, right? it is. Yes, yeah. it is. That's absolutely awesome, Alan. And I so appreciate your time today. I'm going to ask you one final question, which would be what two or three tools or tips or resources Would you advise any woman or diverse person interested in pursuing a law career in Indiana to know or do in order to advance their leadership trajectory in this community?
0: I always think that no matter what profession you're in, you've got to pick one or two things that you're going to be active in in the community. And the way I went about it is that there were boards that I I went on that were for the purpose of meeting other people for business development. And then there were boards that I went on because the organization was doing things that that appealed to my core and that gave me a balance. And so I think you have to um, to do that. I don't think that you can be the best lawyer you can be if you don't have at least some interest in the community that you are active in that matter to you. Yeah, And I have always taken that approach Because I think that being active in the community is so incredibly important because people are looking for leadership. They're looking for good leadership. And I think that a lot of lawyers have the intellect, the logical thinking that can allow them to be good leaders across the board in the community.
1: Well, with that, those are the parting words of the incomparable Alan Mills, who is going to sail off in the retirement sunset in about a month from now. Alan, again, we wish you so much. Good things ahead. Thank you for all that you've done. Thanks for all the shots you took for our community in order to truly make sure that we become a premier community for not just legal talent, but diverse legal talent, and that we continue to lead the country in what diverse legal talent can do and the awesome career they can have. So thank you for everything you've done. And we so excited to see what comes of Alan Mills, the non-lawyer.
0: Thank you so much, Angela. This has been absolutely fun.
1: Thank you again to Alan Mills, and thanks to you for joining us on this 28th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Central Indiana business community.